Welcome to Envision, fostering a community for change. Your host is Thomas Rosenberg. In today's program, you'll meet fascinating people who are implementing innovative ideas to make a difference both locally and globally. Now, here is Thomas Rosenberg. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Envision. I'm Thomas Rosenberg, and today we'll be discussing food and fiber sheds. What are food and fiber sheds, you ask? A watershed is the area in which all water flows in the same direction. Similarly, a food shed is the area in which food is grown, processed, and consumed. A fiber shed is where fibers are grown, processed, and utilized, whether in manufacturing or by the end user. So why am I focusing on this topic? Consciously developing food and fiber sheds is one way to build human, social, natural, and financial capital in rural communities. Mapping food and fiber sheds illustrates the flow of money and materials, where values ex- value exists and the community's values, as well as existing and potential opportunities for creativity within the community. It also helps in creating a shared vision of what's possible through collaboration. Today, I am joined by three people with extensive experience in food systems and fiber sheds. Linda McElwee has 25 years experience in organic gardening and permaculture. She helped develop the Mendocino County Local Food Guide. In her day job, she works for the Mendocino County Resource Conservation District. She collaborates with district partners to encourage landowners to use the Landmark Conservation Planning Program. She is also becoming a certified educator in the USDA's NRCS Holistic Management Program. Miles Gordon's entire career has focused on food systems. He has been a farmer, a teacher, a trainer, a human rights worker in the U.S., Mexico, and Central America. He co-founded the Mendocino Food Policy Council and is a member of the California Food Policy Council. He currently serves as the Food Systems Director for North Coast Opportunities, NCO, where he founded the Gardens Project, which combines community gardens, leadership development, and self-management in low-income communities. Matt Gilbert is founder of Mendocino Wool and Fiber Mill. He has been a sheep shearer since he was 13 and has trained and worked as a forester. A native of Mendocino County, he fell in love with the varied landscape and after college returned home and sought ways to find, find ways to make things better. He founded the Wool and Fiber Mill as a way of improving resource utilization in the region. So, hi Linda, Matt, and Miles, and welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Very happy to be here. Wonderful. So I would like to start by getting more of a systems perspective from each of you. Miles, could you start with a brief overview of the issues with the current food system and the benefits of developing a more local food system? Well, the current system has primarily been based on for the last 50 plus years being a very international based and more and more centralized corporate food system. Um, and one of the challenges with that is, of course, we, each community then has, um, uh, is more vulnerable to shocks to the system, be it large-scale weather events, uh, global political events, economic meltdowns, different price swings, transportation issues. And so one of the things that we try and do also is bring in with the local food system much more accountability, not only human accountability, where we can know who our farmers are. We can know where our food's coming from. We can have more control over what is put into that food and how it's grown, um, how people are paid for that food. But at the same time, um, that protects us if we, especially those of us living in more rural areas or even cities, if you look at 
that are really dependent on very specific transportation systems to get the, that global food to them. And if you're producing a larger and larger amount locally, you have much more control over that supply and the storage of that food and not rely on others. So it really creates not only a uh, food security, meaning that food's going to be there, but also the ability to develop a food system that benefits the local community, both economically, socially, and environmentally. Super. Thank you. So, Matt, could you give a brief overview of the lay of the land regarding fiber production and processing here in California and the elements that brought you to deciding to establish the Mendocino Wool and Fiber Mill? What? So, yeah. we'll start with that. I have a follow-on question, but we'll start with that. Well, one of the things that I noticed as I'm shearing sheep is that Mendocino County used to be a major producer of wool. There used to be, I think it was 25 sheep per every person here. But so many of the ranchers I shear for, they aren't producing good quality wool when they could be. Um, part of that is the pricing. They haven't been getting a very good price, so they don't really try very hard to sell the wool. Part of it is it's kind of hard to sell, sell wool. Um, you have to truck it out of state you have, or you leave it, leave it at a drop place here, and you get paid for it nine months later if they remember to, look, remember to write you a check. And so as I'm kind of working with all of these ranchers, I'm thinking, well, gosh, there's all of this resource here. If there were somebody local who could work with these people and say, look, this is exactly the kind of fiber that I want. This is what I can pay you for it. This is how you go about breeding to improve the quality. Well, it seems like there's an opportunity that would increase the fiber, the, the resource utilization right here. Um, in California overall, that's fairly comp. That's pretty much what it's like as far as I can tell all over. Um, there's a few small mills, but there's no big mills. All the fiber gets shipped out of state, um, much of it overseas. Mm-hmm. And, and w- so what linkages do you see between the food system and the fiber shed? Um, so the, the biggest link is that people are interested in where their resources come from, and they want them to come from nearby, and they want to be able to, to see those areas. Um, if people are wondering, well, where are my... Um, my carrots coming from? Well, where is my where is the wool for my sweater coming from? And we're fairly close to um, a number of markets. I get the Bay Area being the primary one, and people and I can describe this area kind of in their backyard, and they, and I can explain what we're doing and how sheep are getting raised. And I think that appeals to a lot of people. On another, the another way that they those two overlap is that I know a guy who runs thousands of sheep, and he largely runs them in the orchards and the vineyards, um, and the, the sheep can benefit the food that's produced there. He said one of his guys swears he gets 10% more pears when the sheep graze there because they eat the, the fruit, so there's fewer pests. They, um, they clean things up. They trim up some of the leaves. Um, and so it's very, oh, the sheep are very holistic um, way of managing the, the land base, and the land base can produce both fiber and food. Excellent. So, Linda, I wanted to bring you in on the conversation here, and you helped develop the, the Mendocino Local Food Guide, collecting information on farms, farmers markets, granges, food banks, and restaurants. And to me, that must have felt like connecting a lot of dots for you. When it was, when was it developed, and what did that process bring to light for you regarding the Anderson Valley and Mendocino County as food sheds? Uh, 
So uh, the, the Mendocino County Local Food Guide was developed in 2007 as the first paper guide, and it was born out of a project that we called Come On Home to Eat, which started, I think, in 2005, October, and we challenged ourselves as a group, the Anderson Valley Food Shed, to uh, eat locally for the month of October. And during that process, an experiment for us, what we, we really learned, we had a hard time knowing who were the producers and where could we get local food. So that really spurred us on to create a resource guide. But one of the things that happened with Come On Home to Eat as well was that um, we realized that, you know, aside from the, uh, the obvious things like avocados and chocolate and coffee, that we had a real gap in uh, so, um, dry beans, for example, some real staple crops and, uh, and grains, for example. So... Uh, there were really, we were having a hard time uh, basically sourcing those foods. And we were used a 100-mile radius from Boonville and Anderson Valley at that time. And, you know, that got us into the Bay Area and I'm at the Humboldt Cheese and out into the marine resources. We had seaweed. We have so much abundance of food, but we really had to learn how to source it. So sometimes, you know, if it's learning uh, who the farmers were, and um, where the meat producers were and how to buy directly from the farmer. And um, also there's been people that have filled in those niches in business ways as far as the, there's the Mendocino Grain Project that developed out of some of that work and uh, has been developing and growing grains here in Mendocino County now since around that time, probably 2007. And uh, what we realized, really the food guide was one, to help us source local food and where to find it and help other people find local food. But really it was also to support farmers and keep farmers farming and on the land, uh, which we saw and understood as a, it's a real challenge for farmers to make it. And what we have up here is a lot of small farms spread out mm-hmm. to a very diverse landscape. And so the challenges are even greater because we have scale issues and you know, it's really the small farmers here that are going to feed Mendocino County. And so uh, that's one of the major things that we learned and sort of how to help uh, support our farmers. And that's really why we developed the guide. And uh, we did a reprint in 2009, and then we had uh, the, put it all on the web in 2011 and updated that website uh, in just recently in 20. 16. And uh, what's beautiful about going from the paper guides is that they, they do fill a niche. They helped us to get the word out. But when now that it's online, there's now all those links have become live. And so it feels like a web of local food for Mendocino County that really helps people access resources for food banks and uh, who the agency people are and like North Coast Opportunities and different programs out there supporting farmers as well as eaters. Mm-hmm. So, um yeah. So, so bringing up your your point on the the small farmers feeding Mendocino County, how have the landowners and farmers responded to the idea of creating a local food shed? Because obviously, you're doing outreach through your your day job with the Resource Conservation District, but also with you know LandSmart and the Climate Beneficial Agriculture. So, I was just curious as people are looking at those programs well, and. Being listed. Yeah, what, what? I mean, a, a common denominator there for all of those things is really, again, helping farmers stay on the land and uh, have a, not only sustain them help economically, but then the climate beneficial practices that, it, you know, sustainable practices on the landscape. So 
sort of a, a twofold process or approach with farmers. And uh, they're definitely receptive here. We have a, a pretty unique group of farmers here. I mean, not everybody, for sure. There's, um, you know, we have a lot of grasslands here. What we have is just this really unique and beautiful blend where um, we have a lot of ranch land, and um, which is in sheep and cattle, uh, a lot of hillsides and meadowland, but we also have um, these small, they're smaller farms, and so the the scale is is quite different. But then there, the, one of the challenges that we're run, that we run into here is access to uh, to land because a lot of it is also in vineyards growing grapes for wine, and also cannabis. Uh, mm-hmm. So these are some some of the land issues that we run into uh, here in the county. Challenges. Yeah. <laughs> Challenges, definitely. So, Miles, between Matt's and, and Linda's comments, what, what common factors do you see that could support the development of a resilient local food and sh- food shed and, and fiber shed, for that matter? Well, I think at this point, uh, we're in an interesting transition zone. Um, again, we've, um, we've really, as a society, put a lot of our, our financial and regulatory framework to support large-scale centralization. Um, so as right now from the fiber world that's working on and Linda and all of the small farmers, we really have to rebalance out the, and I'd say that people don't like it, but we have to rebalance out the subsidy regime um, in a lot of ways too. And that means providing training for farmers about how to move into the wholesale market, providing subsidies, which a lot we're working with, you know, granting agencies, et cetera, to kind of recreate that infrastructure from local food hubs that do the the brokering and the marketing and the delivery of the food in a local scene. Right now, the majority of our food until the last couple of years um, that we produce, we ship it a couple of hours out to the Bay Area where it gets boxed up by a wholesaler and shipped back to our markets because we don't have any of that infrastructure. Um, so that's a key piece too, and that can be done through land, through training, through infrastructure, for subsidies. So really... Until we can get our local farmers back up to skill with infrastructure, both um, knowledge infrastructure and physical infrastructure, where they can be much more competitive with this global market that has all of that subsidies and regulatory framework that's geared to them, um, it's it's a challenge. Um, and I think everybody admits it's a challenge, but the benefits um, are being really appreciated by, one, the local consumers, and two, our retailers and our producers right now. There's something really nice to be able to see your food in your local market rather than having to, I used to grow melons with my brother, you know, all through our teens and 20s. And after harvesting all day long, we would have to Rochambeau at night, um, who's going to drive two and a half hours down to the San Francisco Produce Mart to take it and sell it wholesale to see it two weeks later or a week later shipped back up. Um, so there's something satisfying about knowing that right away your fresh produce is being moved into your local economy and as a consumer to be able to buy that in your local economy. So those kind of efforts we need to focus on and not let the market as we you know, are, are told it's pre-market and things just happen based on market. But it really is. It. It's, there's government and societal interventions at so many pieces. And we have to be really strategic about saying what our values are. Do we really... Um, truly value a local, democratically-based economy and democratically-based society that takes for each other. So we have to put our energy in that place. 
Mm-hmm. So, Miles, I wanted to pick up on one point that you made about subsidies and changing that subsidy structure. Mm-hmm. So, at what scale or what level does that happen? Is that at the local level or is that at the national level? Is it the combination? What? How do you how can you play at the at the local level with subsidies? Well, at the moment, there's a couple of key, key areas. When we look at um, a lot of our regulatory framework. Um, especially when it comes to food. Yes, it comes to the FDA and USDA, but a lot of that is interpreted and then uh, rewritten through the state level, for example, in California. A lot of those um, regulations are geared towards very large scale. So one, we're trying to work with both our local ag and our environmental health to say, you know what, how do we create, you know, so it's not, thousands of dollars for the permitting of a local processing when somebody is a small scale, but you know, thousands of dollars of permitting cost really is going to knock somebody who's just starting off in a food processing to be able to do it, where if you bring some very large-scale um, corporation or business, and that's nothing for them. So we have to really look at how do we subsidize one, the cost of regulation for the small scale versus, and this is a conversation going on everywhere. The other thing it has to do with also is for example, uh, we there's a lot of local grants and grants. Nobody wants to become um, dependent on the grant world, but it can give a really key kickstart, and that's done everything through a lot of our communities across the country are using everything from USDA. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is now starting to say, hey, you know what, there is value in maintaining our local farm economies, and so they are starting to put some of their money into saying, how can we help rebuild this infrastructure through grants? Um, and they're also doing that through low-cost loans. So really focusing both on a local level and local community foundations and local nonprofits are doing that same work also, working with our local schools to help them re-equip. We've done a lot of work with um, using federal and local funds to re-equip school cafeterias. Most of our school cafeterias across the nation no longer cook from scratch. They are heat-and-serve that is delivered to them from some large, usually centralized, not local um, pro- food processing center. So how do we create some local subsidies to re-equip and retrain um, our food service staff to be able to handle local produce? So those are the areas that both on a regulatory area and on a financial area, I think really can help kickstart or the kickstarts already happen, really maintain the movement towards um, building the knowledge and physical infrastructure for a local food economy. Super. Thank you, Miles. We'll be back after a short break and continue our conversation with Linda McElwee, Matt Gilbert, and Miles Gordon on Food and Fiber Sheds. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. What makes a great leader? Most have a vision, one that starts beyond the resources available and continues from that point into developing a solid plan, organization, and company. Leadership issues are discussed each week on VoltCast, illuminating leadership with host Jeff Smith. Jeff has years of experience as a leader and executive coach, and his guests will bring you information that can help a team of any size. Listen every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. 
Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. What defines your success? Is it success in your business? Success in your personal life? Is it more money? Is it meaningful relationships? How about your passion? Listen for Taking Care of Business with host David Wallach. David's guests share their challenges and what they did to overcome them. What if you can let your passion for success lead you to your success? Taking Care of Business is broadcast live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Envision with Thomas Rosenberg. To find out more about the program, please visit our website at regenerate.coach. That's regenerate.coach. You can also visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. Now back to Envision. Here again is Thomas Rosenberg. Welcome back, everyone. In case you're just joining us, we are here with Matt Gilbert of Mendocino Woolen Fiber, Linda McElwee of the Mendocino County Resource Conservation District, and Miles Gordon, Food Systems Director for North Coast Opportunities. We've been speaking about the issues of our current food system, the benefits of a more local food system, and some of the challenges in developing that, and the linkages between developing a local food system with a more local fiber shed. And Matt, I wanted to ask you, what does a vibrant, resilient fiber shed look like to you? You, you touched on it a little bit but I w- uh, earlier, but I was wondering if you could uh, unpack that a little bit more. I would consider a vibrant fiber shed to be one that has a diversity of goods being produced and sold and successful businesses making those. So you've got the rancher who's able to make all the investments in their ranch and produce good quality wool. You've got all of the businesses that would process that wool. You've got all the businesses that would use that processed wool. Um, and it wouldn't just be wool. It would, you'd have maybe some bast fibers too. Um, and all, all of these coming together uh, in a robust and diverse way. Okay, super. Thank you. So Miles, you work on two food policy councils, both at the county level and at the state level. So what is the purpose of these councils and how do they operate? Well, as in many things, and especially in, I think, the nonprofit or the farming world, you have a lot of people doing their own thing. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, I think, natural territorialism that happens. Well, hey, this is just what we do and this is what I do. And and so the idea of these food policy councils and how they formed originally was how do we bring people together in these networks to know what's, one, going on, and two, to find those sort of places for converging together to uh, work together to collaborate and make things happen at a more efficient and effective level. So at the local county level, we are doing just that. A lot of that is it's a networking place where we can come together and say, what are the key issues? Um, we've worked with livestock 
um, ranchers in our area, what are the key issues for the smaller ones and the larger ones, other areas that we can advocate, one, both local policy um, and regulations that might help uh, benefit different sectors of the food economy locally. So it's a really, it's a learning opportunity for everybody in the room. We've got people that are from social services to local retail market owners to restaurateurs to school um, people in the school system to the farmers themselves, farmers markets. So trying to be, bring together this diverse group of people to learn from each other and then say, how can we work together to advocate to improve the food system? And then the state level really is to take all of those local things. And as I was saying earlier, there's a lot of laws and regulations that happen at the state level and above. And so how do each of us, we're from a rural area, and there's many rural, but our populations are dominated by the large population centers, often in the city area. So how do we bring those different voices together at a statewide level to say, you know what, these are the key issues that are affecting our farmers and fiber folks at the local rural level or the local urban level. How do we learn from each other and then go to our state officials, which we do. We actually go when we meet as the California Food Policy um, Council and we have our legislative day. We go and we talk to our local representatives and bring forward the issues that we see them, one, working on current bills and two, to advocate for new bills, new legislation to be able to benefit our local and our statewide um, food and farm economy. Excellent. So, Matt, I wanted to ask you, are there equivalents in, in fiber sheds? Are there fiber shed councils? Um, there's a fiber shed organization that is uh, doing a lot of that work. But as far mm-hmm. as I know, there are no fiber shed councils. Okay. Linda, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned earlier with the, the food policy, uh, the food guide and, and trying to buy local for a month, what, back in 2007. And has that helped, has the creating the food guide helped strengthen the market for local food or did it focus more on making people aware of where the production was actually occurring? Um, I think it's a twofold process, um, you know, both ways. Uh, we've gone, we still do the October come on home to eat. It's gone back and forth to the county level and back to the local level in the Anderson Valley. And um, so it's both and, I would say, um, when we, one of the things that we do is we put shelf talkers up and there's, there's other efforts going on around the county through um, Mendo Lake Grown Local and Mendo Nomo, Mendo Noma Grown Local, um, and something similar in the Anderson Valley where yeah, they're, they're called shelf talkers. And so during, uh, we do it, we check in on it in October, but uh, basically there, there are signs in the grocery stores that help point out which are the local items and who the producers are. And so that helps eaters identify local food. It also brings mm-hmm. and highlights the farmers. And so that's, that's one place where we cross over uh, as well as also uh, there's a food finder on the food guide uh, website so that people can search for a specific type of food and have the farmers, you know, that make, you know, that are producing that blueberries, for example, and where you can source those or where are the, the farm stands. So uh, for chefs or things like that to be able to uh, find and locate food and who are the producers. So there's about, about 100 producers that we have listed. Uh, there's many more than that. It's a little bit of a changing landscape, but um, mm-hmm. over these past 10 years, there's been quite a little bit of a you know, flux of new farmers and other farmers that have stepped in and out of the game. But 
um, I think that as a as an outreach and education, it's a resource uh, site. It, it's uh, helped highlight local food. And one of the things that Miles brought up is this local food hub, at, which is now filling a niche. Um, and at some point before the end of the show, I'd love to just touch bases on a, a process that we went through that was a visioning process called Steps Towards a Local Food Economy. So maybe not Please? now, but I think... No, uh, go, uh, ahead. go ahead. Go, go for it. Yeah, right now. Want to hear, well, I want to well, hear in, more. Okay. In 2006 and seven, uh, the Anderson Valley Food Shed organized and pulled together you know, stakeholders across the county, farmers, gardeners, and their allies to ask the question of... Um, like what would it take to create a local, a thriving local food economy here in the next 10 to 15 years? And we basically brainstormed and broke up into uh, groups and created short-term, medium-term, and long-term goals, and they were broken up into basically five areas. And what was what's interesting about to me about this, well, the five areas are uh, infrastructure for growing, processing, storing, and distributing. Uh, local food is one a year-round supply of local food, um, fi- food, fiber, and medicine was another uh, area, um, livable income for farmers and farm workers and affordable local food was a separate one. Uh, the real value and genuine pleasure of local food are appreciated, which is a whole thing of, of, of itself. And then the last area is the county policy to support local food farmers, local farmers and local food. And what we found, and you can see these, they're laid out in a matrix um, as a visioning session, and it, it names all of the elements that we felt like for short-term goals. You, we create a, a guide to local food. There's the, you know, uh, local mar- markets or feature local foods. There's, this is how to have people appreciate more of the local food and farmers that they're appreciated. Uh, oral histories, farm internships for, you know, uh, high school students. Anyway, anyway, there was just all kinds of things. That was just one example of where there were short-term goals and then mm-hmm. uh, medium goals and long-term goals. So what uh, is interesting to me about this is that it was a roadmap. And now after 10 years to go back and look at things, a lot of things have either been dealt with or explored or in development uh, for a number of years. The Food Policy Council and the policy part kind of sat a little bit dormant. And then the Food Policy Council got organized and they've just Leaps and bounds have filled an entire niche on how to support our local food system. So That's super. Just as a vision, and I'll step in. it was very fruitful. And I'll step in to say that steps towards local food economy, because I really got involved in 2007, was the foundation really for the Medicina Food Policy Council. Um, several of the people that worked on that organizing effort, joined, we joined in with them and really took it to a much larger county level of organizing and brought mm-hmm. hundreds of people in through food summits, um, regional food gatherings with dozens and dozens mm-hmm. of stakeholders, with our local officials. And coming out of those, we created this food action plan, which was the next step um, from the matrix mm-hmm. that Linda described. And that's really, you can, you know, you can see that at mendocinofood.org. It's part of the... Um, Mendocino County Food Policy Council, but really the organizers, we were sitting around after one of our really big food summits, and we said, huh, what do we do now? Somebody says, we should be a food policy council. And so really <laughs> that, that local organizing is a key piece. It's been interesting. as Being a part of the California Food Policy Council, many of the food policy councils were started sometimes from a government uh, perspective. It was the county supervisors or a, a supervisor appointed some people to start it, or they said, hey, public health, you start this. 
And when their polit- politics change at the top or some funding source change, they've really struggled to stay alive. And I've seen the power of the bottom-up organizing, and this is a multi-year, multi-event um, and outreach effort that's gone on and on and continues to bring people in a circle to get people to buy in and say, what are the issues? What do you want to see local economy? And they're all volunteers. I mean, we've, it's all volunteer people, full-time jobs, they're all in their extra time to be on these councils and this work because they have a stake in it, and it's not dependent on who's holding political office or who's got their purse strings um, opened up to be able to fund this. And I think that's a really important piece of building a fiber and food economy, is it's really to be sustainable and to meet the local needs, it's got to be from the bottom up. Um, it's nice to have the top support, but that shouldn't be the basis for its existence. Right. You have to start with the bottom of the pyramid, right, to sort of support everything that is built on top. So correct. Yeah, that's awesome. That so you mentioned something miles about public health and so I was curious you know you founded the the gardens project at NCO and as I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier supports the low income communities in developing community gardens and also adds in a layer of leadership development and self management and you now have 45 mm-hmm. gardens feeding over 3000 people which is a um, magnificent mm-hmm. accomplishment. And so I was curious, has anyone followed the community health metrics to see if there's been a reduction in chronic diseases or in childhood improvement in childhood nutrition, or is it still too early to tell? I think it's, it's too, there's so many factors that, I mean, even though that many people are eating out of the gardens, um, it's not providing, you know, 80 or 90% of their food for some of them. It's providing 80 to 90% of the fresh produce that mm-hmm. they have because they're growing the fresh produce. We do a lot of surveying of all those gardeners. That's how we know these numbers, how many people are eating out of your garden, et cetera. And we do ask, you know, about health and their access to fresh produce. And absolutely, it is dramatically, for those people that are involved in this, it's dramatically changed their accessibility to fresh produce. Um, and it's all organic. It's something they've grown it's fresh, and so it's harvested when it's at its peak nutrition, uh, you know, three weeks or four weeks before, so it can sit on shelves and trucks for weeks on end. Um, mm-hmm. So on that sort of survey level with the people we're, we're surveying that are in the gardens, we're seeing dramatic increase in their access and consumption of fresh vegetables and fresh fruits. Fantastic. Okay. I'd like to change the focus a little bit here. Matt, I wanted to ask you about creating fiber sheds and what are some of the challenges that you've been seeing and what are some of the challenges that you faced establishing the Mendocino Woolen Fiber Mill? The biggest challenge is that if that a fiber shed is an incredibly complex thing, not having worked with a, a food shed much, but when you make grow vegetables, you grow the food and you cut the lettuce and then you store it for a little while and then you sell it. To get the wool into a sweater and then to sell the sweater takes dozens of steps. You have to grow the wool, you have to shear the wool, you have to transport the wool, you have to scour the wool, card the wool, pin draft it, spin it. Then you need to get a weaver, then you need, maybe you need to get a dyer in there somewhere, then you need to get it sold to the, at the final destination. And so the number of expertise that it takes to do all these steps is rather impressive actually. Um, my observations of the fiber shed, uh, the, the, the 
the eco- fiber ecosystem, I guess you could say, right here, is that the missing piece was the processor of, of the wool. So the mill that we've been starting is going to take raw wool and it's going to turn it into yarn. There's people out there who are doing the knitting and doing the dyeing that are, um, hopefully there's going to be people out there that are going to be selling. Um, but we've been very focused on just this one little step. I'm really hoping that once this mill is fully operational, that all of these other pieces are going to fall into place and that people are going to really ramp up the amount of stuff that they're producing, the amount of stuff that they're selling, the amount of stuff that they're weaving and dyeing. But that hasn't happened yet. Um, but <laughs> that's, the, that's the next step. Hopefully that will come. That will on come. A, on, a, on a myopic level, my challenge is right here starting the mill. It in itself is a really complex endeavor. Um, we check the scale of it because you have to be big enough to get an economy of scale in the production um, for it to really make any sense. If you keep it too small, that sweater is going to be too expensive. If you make it too big, um, think Pendleton, suddenly you can't custom make anything and it's really not local. And so we're the mill is hopefully going to be producing about 2,000 pounds of yarn a month, which I think is this really nice sweet spot right in the middle. It's bigger than most of the small mills, but it's small enough that it really is truly a local mill. Um, Super. So <laughs> starting it has, <laughs> has been a challenge. I've had, I've had, I lear- learned all about electrical. It was going to be $16,000 to have somebody installing electrical in the building. So I go, I guess I'm learning that step. <laughs> did the sheet rocking. I, did, I, I figure I did about a third of the construction and right now I'm of just the building. And so now I'm learning all about installing machinery and moving heavy things and learn to weld so I could do this project. It's, it's been a learning process for me. It's, it sounds like it. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Matt. We have to take a short break and we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My favorite coffee story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories, too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What is your purpose? In the journey that we call life, our values are pre-programmed into us before we're born. During our lives, we pick up life's lessons and soul connections along the way. We explore this path on Soul Sessions with Solstice, featuring hosts Delana Davis and Rita McRae. 
Our program is designed to help you more confidently live from your heart and not just your head. Tune in live for Soul Sessions with Solstice every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Envision with Thomas Rosenberg. To find out more about the program, please visit our website at regenerate.coach. That's regenerate.coach. You can also visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. Now back to Envision. Here again is Thomas Rosenberg. Welcome back, everyone. We were talking with we are talking with Linda McElwee, Matt Gilbert, and Miles Gordon on food and fiber sheds, and we were discussing the challenges that they have seen in the development of local food and fiber sheds. And Matt, right before the break, you were discussing some of the challenges that you've seen or experienced in developing the the, the mill, and I would love for you to touch on some of the the financial aspects and and how, because you have a pretty innovative model with the direct public offering. And so I'd love for you to explain a little bit more about that. I'd be happy to. Um, So I had spent several years researching and putting together a business plan and had a pretty solid business plan. So I quit my job, bought the property and was applying for um, applying for loans. What I'd overlooked was that I didn't have enough equity anywhere to qualify for a standard loan. The feedback that I got back from the places I applied for was everything's up to industry standards, but you don't have enough equity, so this is too risky. And so the only place we were able to get funding, which was a, an awesome a place to get funding from, was the Economic Development and Financing Corporation had been talking about doing a local projects fund. Um, raising money locally for investing here, for developing um, things like the food shed and the fiber shed. And so we ended up being in this pretty nice place where they, the timing worked out where John Curry from EDFC and I had been talking for years. He was familiar with this project and it was like, we would like to move ahead, but we need a project um, for this, this fund to fund. Um, and yours seems like a good fit. And so what they did is they um, raised investments from the community um, for, this, for this fund, um, and the mill ended up being the only, only thing that they invested in. But they were able to raise, I think it was 354000 from the local community to invest in the local community. Um, and so that's the money that we're using right now to build the mill. That's fantastic. So is... Is that equity, or how how does the deep how does the direct public offering work? What, what, the, what? the money is lent by the individual individual investors to EDFC to this fund, and then EDFC has lent that money to me, or mm-hmm. not to me, but to the business, which is owned by my wife and I. Um, and so it is it's a loan that we're we're paying back um, to EDFC, and then EDFC will turn around and. Uh, make interest payments to the investors. Super. Over over what time period is that typically done? Uh, typically, I think this is the first time anywhere that something quite like that. But in this instance, uh, it's a five-year loan um, with mm-hmm. a 
uh, a balloon payment at the end. So we will have to refinance from somewhere in what four, four and a half, three and a half years now from now. But by then we'll have the business operational and have cash flow and it'll be something demonstrable to the lender. So we should be able to get a loan then. But the fact mm-hmm. that the community is willing to risk their money in me, in us right now, when we don't have years of experience running this equipment, we don't have anything in place. It was, pr- it was pretty awesome. That is very awesome. So if a community, Matt, wants to explore the possibilities of creating a fiber shed, what elements do they need to consider? Where the fiber is getting produced, where the fiber is getting consumed, and if there's people willing to buy that, um, and then all of the pathways from one to the other. If, you are ha- if you're just doing the hand-woven, hand-spun, or if you want to open up something where you're actually producing things on a much bigger scale, um, you need all of these different players and different expertise to get from one end to the other. Mm-hmm. Kind of this web of expertise to get <laughs> everybody interreliant on everybody else to, to make that final product. So mapping that out first would be really helpful. Is what I think you're saying. so, and that's yeah. a lot of what I did um, before we before I quit my my day job. Um, was trying to understand, um, I already already understood quite well the wool that was getting produced locally, but what I didn't understand nearly as well was um, all the different markets for yarn. Mm -hmm. And so the the fiber said the organization um, in the Bay Area was extremely instrumental in introducing me to a lot of the people that wanted to buy yarn, who wanted to... um, be able to make 100% local sweater. And so through, through that organization, I was kind of able to see this big web. You had all of these producers, all of these, um, all of, all of these different links in the, in, the, in the production web, I guess you could say. But the missing piece was this mill in the, in the middle that could economically um, custom make large batches of material. Mm-hmm. Okay. Super. Miles, for communities interested in evaluating their food systems and making them more locally focused, what are your top five resources? Or what would you recommend as the top five resources for people to explore? Well, it depends. Every community is a little bit different. I mean, find out generally you're going to find somebody's already focused on it. Um, again, it's that whole idea of people think they need to start something new every time. Oh, I need to start a new nonprofit to do this, or I need to start a new organization. The key thing is, is to really assess who's working on some piece of this. It could be your local cooperative extension, um, which are all across the country working on how to support their local agricultural economy. It could be your local farm bureau, which is a much more advocate oriented. A lot of public health agencies are working on, you know, food is being one of is what we're eating is one of our key public health issues right now. So you might find people there that are working on education around it. Um, sometimes your schools are really focused on it from their school gardens um, or their cafeterias, and they're really focused on, again, children's health. So it's really, I think, exploring those local resources to say who in my community is focused on this already, because guaranteed you're going to find somebody. Um, there's a real, again, there's this, there's this sense that people need to start something new every time, and that's how we get really fractured 
and it's sort of anti-system. Um, it's breaking that system into too many little pieces where you can't form a system. So once you can do that, then really try and see who are the good people in your community for facilitating collaboration because often you will have people doing little pieces of this work um, and you need strong facilitation. People who are able to step back and say, hey, let's work together. Um, I have kind of this motto, at least, and I'm sure we're not unique in Mendocino County, California, but there's a sort of a motto of everybody likes to be very individualistic and it's like, let's all do our own thing together. And that's kind of what the attitude you need is let's honor everybody's work, but let's let's collaborate and work on these issues together because that's that bottom-up piece, people, mm-hmm. uh, piece is really honoring people, their knowledge, what they're doing, but helping them may, uh, accomplish their goal by your support and what you bring to the table. So, again, there's no definitive answer of these are the key resources. The key resources are what your community has to offer, and that can be farmers markets. It can be all of the different areas, but really asking and being mm-hmm. open to hear the answers. Okay. Well, that kind of leads into my next question for Linda here. If a community wants to create a local food guide like you did for, for Mendocino, who should be involved and what are the key elements that need to be kept in mind? Well, um, I think it can be, um, again, kind of building off of what uh, Miles just was saying, that, um, again, I would, I would uh, survey what's already happening, who's our, where is the interest, in the, you know, the groups that are naturally already uh, sort of interested in these efforts. In our county, we have a, a lot of diverse area uh, from the coast to inland, so um, maybe not all one size fits all. We, if we're the Mendocino County Local Food Guide, we have chosen to focus on just the county within the county, but um, also we have areas that bleed into our neighbors. So, um, you know, that's been something that we've sort of had to wrestle with a little bit on sort of what, what are the defining boundaries, if there are any. Um, so, and uh, the other thing that we've, you know, we focused on was. Um, we really did focus on the farms and uh, maybe other people, and it was really for local eaters and chefs and restaurants and farmers and businesses uh, within the county. Uh, there's other efforts out there that are supporting the vineyard industry and the wine grower industry and uh, tourist industry, and uh, we felt like, you know, we would like to po- cross-pollinate with all of those and not, not keep it, you know, it's not separate, but uh, support each other's efforts, but... The, the local food guide has been pretty focused, just really trying to keep it focused on food and farmers and uh, local products that were created, value-added products. So celebrating local food and uh, helping to spread that word and educate people and build appreciation for local food and farmers is uh, sort of just the, the main goal. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So, Miles, where can listeners find the Garden Project, and uh, NCO in North Coast Opportunities in social media? Um, well, for Facebook, there's the Gardens Project on, at NCO, um, and also gardensproject.org, um, plural on gardensproject.org, or ncoinc.org has a lot of the different um, community wellness programs that are focused on that. Uh, we run the Food Hub as well as a lot of food processing and working with um, the uh, food stamps is the, the basic uh, education and market match programs and a lot of farmers market support. So gardensproject 
are great places to get some basic information. Call us, write us, and uh, happy to provide a lot more information and detail about how to help do this in your own community. Super. Thank you. So, Linda, where can people find the org- or f- and follow the organizations you're involved with? Uh, well, there's MendocinoLocalFood.org is where you can find the Mendocino Local Food Guide and a lot of resources that link to around the county that, uh, and a list of, uh, of all the farmers, that not all the farmers, but 100 or so farmers in Mendocino County, and uh, farmers markets, et cetera, stores that, that sell local food and restaurants, et cetera. Um, and then I also work through the Mendocino County Resource Conservation District, so that's mcrcd.org. And the, in my, the organization that started in 2004 is called the Anderson Valley Food Shed, and that's at avfoodshed.com. And uh, we have Facebook pages for all of those as well. Super. So that's A as in Apple, V as a- in Victor. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And excellent. Yes. And I believe that the the Mendocino wool and fiber mill can be, they certainly have a Facebook page. I don't know if they have a, there you are, Matt. Facebook.com slash Mendo wool. Mendo wool. And we don't have, we'll have a website once we're uh, up and running. And when do you anticipate that happening? Very soon, next few months. I'm several pieces of, one piece of machinery is operational now. The next one I'm, working on I took a break from it for this conversation mm-hmm. and next month I'll be working on the spinner super awesome well can you say that Facebook site again Matt yes facebook.com slash Mendo wool or you can just wool. search Mendocino wool and fiber excellent right. well thank you Linda Miles and Matt it's been a pleasure having you here today thank, thank you it's been our pleasure my pleasure yeah thank you yeah we'll be back next week Please look for announcements on the voiceamerica.com host page, and you'll find recordings of today's shows, other shows, and my guest's social media links. Thanks for joining, and see you next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific. I'm your host, Thomas Rosenberg. Thank you for tuning in this week to Envision with Thomas Rosenberg. Be sure to join us again next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a terrific week.